0: Uh, How are y'all doing this morning? Awesome. Uh, My name is Marco. I serve as a preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank y'all so much for joining us uh, as we worship Christ together, as we worship Him through His Word and ultimately His promise. Uh, I'd love to just dive into our time uh, this morning, and so I would invite you to join me in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 48, verses 1 through 11. And so while you do that, I got just a couple of things for y'all. So number one, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we do have Bibles available for you. They are in the chairs uh, where you guys are at. And so take one with you, particularly if you do not have one, that is our gift to you. Uh, In addition to that, if you know of someone who would benefit from having a Bible, take one, take more than one, and hook them up. Uh, today we are landing the plane in this series our faithful pursuit i 'll talk a little bit more about that next week if you want to get a jump start next week we are uh, walking into a new series in the book of first John so i'm really really excited about that we'll be there pretty much all of spring uh, and I think that's that's really all I have. Uh, I want to start our time a little differently today. Uh, This particular sermon, I think I've rewritten maybe two or three times, and I think what I have in my mind is going to be a little different than what I have in front of me. And so what I'd like to do is uh, pray for our time uh, before we unpack some of these verses. And so join me in prayer. God, as we come together to worship you... Uh, through song and the preached word, and ultimately, uh, in response to what you are doing in us through your spirit, uh, Lord, I pray that we would simply be present this morning, that we would be receptive this morning, and God, that we would uh, ultimately uh, devote ourselves to this time um, for your glory and our good, Uh, Lord, I'm thankful that we get the opportunity to dive into your word. I am thankful for the opportunity to, again, just worship you. Lord, I pray that those who know you would come to know you better. Those who don't know you would come to know you this morning. Um, Holy Spirit, would you be, uh, we know you're present, but we're intentionally asking you to be present and at work within us and among us. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the songs that you just sang and even in some of the prayers that you may have prayed this morning, one of the common phrases, expressions, one of the common truths that we might even throw around flippantly tends to be for the glory of God right? We do this to the glory of God. Uh, we ask God that you would be glorified. We tend to use phrases and expressions, and, and that's a biblical truth that you and I use in our prayer and in our worship. And so the first question that I have, and we're going to look at a lot of questions today, but the first question would be, well, what, is exactly, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean when you and I say, uh, or you and I proclaim God's glory? See, as I was getting ready for our sermon or this sermon this week, uh, I've been studying the passage for some time now, but in addition to that, I was having difficulty coming up with illustrations to try to captivate your heart and try to captivate your mind so that I can connect some really cool things to the glory of God, And, and, and the truth is I kept coming up short, and some of the examples that I kept coming up with I just didn't like. And so I figured I would open up our time by just asking you one of the questions that I was thinking about uh, and, and trying to build some kind of creative illustration that I just failed at. And so here, here would be my question. Have you ever come across something, not necessarily a person and not necessarily a circumstance, but have you ever come across something that just is couldn't, again, see, like I'm, I'm having trouble like, like putting an illustration to that. But nevertheless, have you ever come across something that just is, and whatever it is, is accompanied by implication? It's about as much as I want to confuse you this morning, but that was what was on my mind all week. And again, I was trying to be creative in how I want to illustrate this, and let's connect this to the glory of God, and I just couldn't. And as I mentioned earlier, we're we're closing our time in this series called Our Faithful Pursuit. Over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at several what we would call values here at Storehouse McAllen. We looked at our identity, that is, uh, who we are is first determined by what God has done for us in Christ Uh, We looked at community, that the purpose of us being in community or in fellowship with one another is so that we would edify one another into maturity and unity. We looked at mission and multiplication, that uh, God's redemptive purpose, God's story of redemption has always involved the faithful presence of his people. And so where you are is where you have been sent Last week we looked at, uh, I guess you could say, gospel generosity, specifically in the context of money. That when it comes to us giving generally, generously, it does not begin with uh, our wallets, but it actually begins with our belief in the gospel. And if that's where we start and if the gospel we preach begins with an act of grace, then we can wrap our minds around grace and we can wrap our minds around why we give generously. But if our understanding of the gospel does not begin with an act of grace, then you and I are always going to be falling short as it pertains to generosity. And now this morning, we look at the glory of God. You see, we can talk about identity and community and mission and generosity and a bunch of other things, several values that we may have, but if we know or if we do not know, that would be a better way to to say it, if we do not know that all of those things exist and are operating for the purpose of God's glory, then you and I have missed it. And we are in danger of, if we haven't already, becoming proud, arrogant, foolish, and ignorant. And so today, we're going to examine Isaiah 48, and we're going to be looking at exactly that. We're going to be looking at God's glory. Because what we're going to see in Isaiah 48 is that God's glory just is. It is self-existing And it just is. And it comes with great conviction and great comfort and great implication. And so, as I mentioned, we're going to be answering a couple of questions. And so, the first one I want us to look at, and if you're looking at notes, some of these are on there. But the first question I want us to look at is, well, what exactly is the glory of God? If we're going to unpack and examine and investigate Isaiah 48 I think there are some questions that we need to preface our time with to better understand or at least to better begin to understand what the glory of God is and so what I'd like to do is turn your attention to two mm, uh, facets of God's glory The first one being His Holiness, and the second one being His weightiness, which is the actual translation of the word glory. It means weight. It is referring to God's weightiness. And so let's start with weightiness. When it comes to God's glory as a weightiness, it tells us we learn from Scripture that God is both judge and merciful, sovereign and loving, just and compassionate. And those characteristics that uh, make Him up, those characteristics carry a weight of Him because again, He is both judge and merciful, sovereign and loving, just and compassionate. A second aspect of God's glory would be God's holiness. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for the word holiness is pronounced kadosh. Now, if you've ever watched Kung Fu Panda and you want to know how to better say that word, it's like when he says kadosh, right? But not at all like that. It is kadosh, which means to be cut. To be cut implies that He is set apart from all of creation. He is set apart. He is entirely moral, entirely pure. He is self-existing and the very source of good. That's what it means when we are describing, talking about, looking at, the holiness of God, and the weightiness of His glory. And we can talk about several other aspects or several other, let me say it this way, several other facets of His glory, but we're only focusing on those two because I want you to know that even if we were to add to that list, these aren't simply aspects of His glory. This is actually His very nature, His essence, His identity, This isn't merely a personality trait. This is something from the core of who God is that radiates from who he is and what he does. And so it takes us to the second question. And the second question is, well then how does God reveal his glory? And again, we can look at several facets of how God reveals His glory. I want to look at one giant category and then break it up into four small, brief sections. That God reveals His glory through His creation. God reveals His glory through His creation. The first one would be the work of salvation for sinners the work of salvation for sinners that is that God reveals his glory in sending his son into human history as the man Jesus Christ who lives in our stead dies in our place paying our penalty And as a result, is buried through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then what he does is that he, on the cross, he imputes his righteousness. But now being at the right hand of the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell and abide in believers so that we would have regenerated hearts, so that our dead hearts would come to life through the Holy Spirit so that our minds would be renewed so that we would now look at life and what we're doing and how we're doing it through the lens of the gospel. That would be number one, that he reveals his glory through the work of salvation for sinners. God also reveals his glory through our identity. See, it doesn't just stop there in receiving a new heart and in receiving a new mind. It is that we are given a new nature and a new status that we went from lost to found, orphans to children, enemy of God to friends with God. It means that we are being sanctified, that the old self is dying because we have put on a new self. That as we move forward in our faith in this gift that we have been given, that we call salvation, that ultimately you and I would reflect the beauty and glory of God as a result of His work done for us. Another way in which He reveals His glory through creation is our worship. That is when you and I proclaim the name of Christ, when you and I proclaim the gospel to those that don't know Jesus, when we proclaim the gospel to one another in the event of discipling one another and encouraging one another and exhorting one another, God's glory is demonstrated through that. When you and I surrender our sin and idols before God so that we would serve God and we set Him above all else, God demonstrates and reveals His glory through our worship. God demonstrates and reveals His glory through our fellowship. Like it's not just because we want to be a part of a club, but it is because God has uh, sent His Son to redeem sinners. And so not only are we reconciled to the Father, but you and I are reconciled to one another. And so we become the physical demonstration of Jesus here on earth. And we reflect His grace and mercy because as redeemed sinners, we have been reconciled reconciled. God reveals his glory through his creation, and each one of these areas in which he reveals his glory is a testimony to his faithfulness, and it's a testimony that inspires you and me to trust him. At the end of the day, if you want to wrap all of that up, it is that God saves sinners from spiritual captivity. And He demonstrates His glory by redeeming us and reconciling us. And so we ask another question. This is not on the notes. But we ask another question. So man, what is God's glory? How does He reveal His glory? We've looked at that briefly. So then the next question, at least in my mind as I was studying this, was why? Why would God do this? Why would He reveal His glory in this way? This is where I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 48. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. For now, we're going to focus, or let me back up. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and we're going to focus on three through eight. That's a lot, but you'll follow along. Here we go. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to God's word through the prophet Isaiah, and I want you to listen to what God says about his people. Here, uh, God is speaking through uh, Isaiah, and he is speaking to his people, okay? Here we go. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord God is His name. So he's addressing the people of God and he is ultimately saying, hey, those of you who say you serve God, those of you who say you confess God, this is his word for you. And here's what he says. God says, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced to them, uh, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass." I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, you see all of this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known, they are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, and you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from birth you were called a rebel. Here's what God is telling his people. And I'll break it down very, very quickly. In verses three through five, this is where we're going to focus on, in verses three through five, God is telling them, hey, I brought forth prophecy of what I was going to do and I have done it. And he continues in verse four, but I know that you are obstinate. That is, I know that you're stubborn. I know that your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. Have you ever seen a two-year-old throw a tantrum? Or when they don't like something, they stiffen up like you're not gonna move me. I was with my granddaughter uh, this past week; It was really cool. But at one point, uh, her mom was trying to correct her, and uh, and so Delilah like tenses up, and she doesn't want to be moved, and she flexes her neck, and she flexes her body, and she begins to throw a tantrum like you're not gonna move me. That's what God is saying about His people. I know you're obstinate and i know you're flexing because you don't like it he continues i declared to you uh, i declared them to you of old lest you should say my idol did them my carved image he is saying i'm going to uh release you or i'm going to liberate you that would be a better word i'm going to liberate you from spiritual captivity but i'm anticipating that your heart is already hardened, and even if I do this good work, you are going to glorify not me, but your idol. You're going to say that it's going to be your idol that got you out of this. In verses 6 through 8, he begins to tell them about new prophecy that will come, but yet he is still challenging their hearts, saying, since before you were born, You were a rebel. Since before you were born, I have anticipated your hardened heart. You see, when we read this section of Scripture, we can quickly think a couple of things. We can quickly think, those Israelites, why didn't they get it right? If they would just do this one thing, if they would surrender their idol and worship God, they wouldn't be going, or will have gone through so many things. That's one way upon which we can look at it. Another way in which is hard is if we insert ourselves into this narrative in Isaiah, and we hear God saying this about you, saying this about me, that we are stubborn that our hearts are hardened, that we praise with our lips but not with our hearts, that we are rebels and are okay with it. If we're honest, when we read Isaiah 48, you and I should be bothered by that. But part of the reason it bothers you and I, not just out of conviction, though that might be one of the things you're experiencing, But part of the reason it bothers us is because you and I are glory-hungry. You and I are glory-hungry. You see, you and I are designed to reflect the glory of God. We talked about how that is done and how he reveals his glory. And you and I are designed to reflect the glory of God. But instead, because of our sin and our corruption, we are always chasing something to satisfy our glory hunger. See, cause at the end of the day, you and I really do wanna be at the center of our world. We do wanna be recognized. We do wanna be worshiped. We do wanna have our own kingdom and break our own rules. You and I are glory hungry. You and I, to put it not so delicately, you and I are actually narcissistic that we have a high view of ourselves so much that we will chase whatever it is that we want to satisfy this glory hunger. And when it comes to satisfaction, you and I find satisfaction in other things because our thirst and hunger for self-glory will never be satisfied in created things. Just never going to satisfy it. Earlier this week, I was talking with a young woman, and she was talking about her marriage, and she begins to open up, and one of the things she says is, I just long to be loved. I long to have value, and I long to have worth. I long to uh, have significance, and if I'm honest, this is her talking, and she says, if I'm honest, um, I long to see the kind of romance that happens in TV and film. I long to be loved in that way. And so I took that opportunity and I said, hey, that love exists. However, it's not going to exist in TV and film. You're just never going to be satisfied through that avenue. However, Jesus loves sinners in that way where he provides safety and significance and assurance and value and worth because he puts his spirit inside of us. when it comes to us satisfying this glory hunger, there is a reason when you go to the bookstore and you look in the Christian book section, you don't see a lot of books that talk about denying yourself, but you do see a lot of books talking about believing in yourself and having positive thoughts and the journey to spirituality, all in the Christian book section. And that's super, super attractive. Because denying yourself is really hard, and that's really some hard language that I kind of don't want to touch about. But if I can do these other things, at some point, maybe I'm going to be satisfied and fulfilled and happy. But Scripture calls us to actually deny ourselves. That if we want to follow Jesus, we are to deny ourselves. And again, our glory hunger will never be satisfied in created things christian do you or can you identify idols in your life you know the kind that you want to share with the glory of god but but how's that working Maybe it's relationship, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's a variety of other things. Maybe it's achievement, it's recognition from peers. Maybe it's uh, parenting because life is so chaotic, but you have it under control. What idols are you trying to share with the glory of God, and how is that working for you? What are these God substitutes that demand your sacrifice, your time, your investment? What are they? And truth is that they could even be good things. They could be biblical things. They can be the kind of things that we just finished walking through when it comes to our values and and the things that we do here at Storehouse. That we can look at our identity as an idol because, hey, God knew what I was going through and so, man, God saved me because I'm cool. Because I'm awesome. Like he he thought I could, uh, you know, I could use a pick-me-up. And so you make salvation all about you. It is for you, but it is not about you. You turn community into making it about you as well. That you get upset when people maybe aren't living up to your own expectations. And when it comes to hearing Ephesians 4 and Paul says, man, that we are in community so that we would grow in maturity so that Christ would be made famous here. You're like, yeah, that sounds really good on paper. But actually in it... Uh, I just really want to emotionally suck the life out of people. And maybe you wouldn't articulate it that way. I know I wouldn't. Maybe when it comes to mission, you're like, yes, faithfully present. I'm all about being faithfully present because the people I'm around are actually projects. But you wouldn't necessarily articulate it that way because you sprinkle it with gospel-centered language. When it comes to generosity, man, you talk about how much you gave and why you gave and all the giving you got. And then when we get to glory, where's my recognition? Where's my praise? Why aren't people seeing what I'm doing? Why aren't people seeing my sacrifice? In Isaiah 41, and again, those are just things that we walked through this past couple of weeks, you could insert something else. You could insert family. You could insert success, money. You could insert recognition and affirmation. You could insert parenting. You could even insert things like life experience and wisdom. Those are things that you value above all else. If you go to Isaiah 41, just a couple chapters back, this is what God says to you and I, concerning our idols. This is beginning in verse 21. He says, set forth your case. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. So here's what God says about our idols. He's like, bring them. Bring them. Make an argument for them. Put them on the table. Tell me about them and then tell them to do something. Like he puts it on the table before you and I. He tells you to put your... uh, your satisfaction or your desire for affirmation or parenting or relationships or because you want to be filled by someone else you want to put all of these things he says yeah bring them to the table put them on there make an argument tell me about them and then tell them to do something and he continues verse 24 behold you are nothing and your work is less than nothing an abomination is he who chooses you Man, I love what God says often through Isaiah because it's always a challenge. He's always inviting, like, yeah, let's do this. Put it on the table. Do something. And that's what he's doing here. Nevertheless, it still does not answer the question, okay, why does God reveal his glory through his creation? I'm like convicted. I feel horrible. All of these things you might be like thinking or feeling in addition to that, you might ask, like, okay, so then why does God even rescue us if we really are this way, if our heart is really an idol factory and there's something always in competition for us as we're trying to serve, follow, and love Jesus, why does he do anything? Going back to Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, here's what God says. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how long should my, or for how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will give. I will not give to another. The reason God loves you, the reason God has restrained his anger toward you, the reason God has chosen you, the reason God is at work in you, is for his glory and his name. You see, the reason God does anything is for the glory and praise of his name, because only he can fulfill that role of faithfulness. You see, our problem with God's glory is that it's not our glory. But here's the good news the good news is in verses 9 through 11. This is where we see this beautiful collision of grace because God pursues idolaters. Because God cares about His name and His glory. He cares about you. And He demonstrates this through His Son. God says in verses 9-11 through that He restrains His anger. What He's really saying is, man, I should cut you off. I should let my anger out on you. And if we connect this to the work of Jesus for sinners, what happens? He unloads His anger on Jesus. He cuts Jesus off so that we would be reconciled to Him. There is a beautiful collision of grace in verses 9 through 11 because God demonstrates this by sending His Son to die for sinners. God's commitment to His people is rooted in His glory. And so then we look to the implications. So what, is, what does that mean? Uh, earlier I told you, like, man, God's glory just is. It's, it's part of his, his, uh, his, his nature, his es- essence. It's a part of his identity. It comes from him. So then what is the implication for you and I? The implication for you and I is that when we begin to wrap our mind or begin to understand the glory of God, it affects how you and I view how God loves us. It affects how God loves us and how we view that. Here would be a a simple question, right? Um, When do you doubt God's love for you? Is it when you get a promotion, right? That paycheck, new car, new house, whatever, right? You're not gonna doubt God's love like, man, God is awesome. But when do you doubt God's love? You doubt it on the worst days, at least I do. You doubt God's love for you on your worst days. And there's a reason for it. The reason for that is because you and I, our hearts are inclined to think about this thing called works righteousness. Works, stuff that we do, righteousness being right with God on our worst days, maybe it's just me. I don't know. You're probably holier than me, right? Like, maybe it's just me. On my worst days, I tend to think about the things I need to do to get back in his grace. Or I've realized, not only have I failed his standard, but at my own standard, I have failed it. What is it that I need to do so that I could get back in his grace. If he could just see these good things that I'm trying to do, then maybe, just maybe, he'll let me back into his grace. However, there is a contrast to that. Scripture teaches Scripture teaches faith righteousness. Faith is a gift from God. To sinners, righteousness is being made right with God. That gift of righteousness is given to sinners in light of what Jesus has done for them. Fancy word is that Jesus imputes, He gives, He imputes His righteousness to us, and He takes our unrighteousness. I've said it several different ways, right? His 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 obedience paid for our disobedience. His, uh, His credit paid for our debt. And that tells us a great deal. It tells us that God's love for us is not contingent on your works. It's not contingent on your merit. But God is jealous for you and for the glory and honor of his name. That means despite our sin, God is not going to become inconsistent because he is jealous for the glory and honor and praise of his name and his glory. That means even on your worst day, you know, the whole emotional roller coaster that we love getting on, That means on your worst day, God loves you because he is committed to his glory. And because he is committed to his glory, you can trust him. You can trust his faithfulness. And so here's where I'll close it up. So Christian, if you are hunting and hungering For self-glory, it's going to hinder your maturity. And more than likely, if that's what you're hunting and hungering for, you're going to praise Jesus with your lips, but your heart will be far from God. In Isaiah 48, as he is addressing his own people, verses three through five is him telling them, I've anticipated your heart and heart. If you're going to be chasing, hunting, hungering for self-glory, it's going to hinder your maturity. You will praise Jesus with your lips, but your hearts will be far from him, and you will exchange the truth of God for a lie each time. God loves you and is pursuing you despite your sin. That is the beauty of Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. He he knows that our hearts are fickle. He knows that our hearts are going to want to serve other things. And he pursues idolaters. Because we're awesome? No, because he is in it for his glory. Listen to 1 Samuel, it's chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And so, what they're doing is they're being confronted with their sin, they're putting it on the table. And this is what Samuel says He said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done this evil. Like, he doesn't say, hey man, God understands. I get it. We're all sinners. You know what I mean? Nobody's perfect. He doesn't say that. He confronts them with their sin. He's like, don't be afraid, and you have sinned. Like, he puts it on them. And then he continues. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside... After empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Check it. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Christian, God loves you and is pursuing you despite your sin. Surrender idols. Surrender your idols. Repent of your sin and fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and keep going. And if you're not a Christian, I can understand how the glory of God may seem abstract and even unreal. Largely, that's due to you not knowing God. However, he invites you to come to know him in surrendering your idols, in repenting of your sin, receiving the gift of salvation, being redeemed from spiritual captivity. In Christ, you will find assurance, security, significance, value, worth, and dignity. You see, the problem we have with God's glory is that it's not our glory. However, the good news of the grace of Jesus is that God pursues idolaters. God, when we begin to talk about your glory, we are quickly, uh, we're quickly convicted about idols that want to take reign in our life. And I think oftentimes, if I'm honest, most of the time we begin to think about idols as tangible things. And although that is true, that's not all of it. God, there are those who are here who wrestle with idols that are tangible, like perhaps money or success or recognition or affirmation or parenting or relationships. But if we're also honest, there are these other idols that we chase that we cannot see. Some of them are things that are hardening our hearts, some of them are things like, like anger or arrogance. Some of them are bitterness. But God, one of the areas in Scripture, and I'm I'm thinking about Psalm 51, God, this is where you provide not just humility, but you provide comfort uh, through David where he says that you do not delight in sacrifice or a burnt offering, otherwise he'd give it. And I think that's the first thing that we think of. What is it that we need to sacrifice so that you would find delight in us? David continues by saying that what you do delight in is a humbled heart and a broken spirit that you will not turn away. And so God, may we approach you confidently, but with a broken, uh, with a humbled heart and a broken spirit when we use the phrase or expression to your glory, may we now know why it's so significant. It is so significant because you won't share that with anyone else. You will not forsake it. And at the same time, you are committed to your people because of your name and glory. God, may that bring us great comfort But may it also bring us conviction, a conviction that leads us to repent and fix our eyes on Jesus so that we may worship you loudly, all for your glory and our good. And God, as we respond to our time through giving and eventually communion, God, would you continue to be at work in us so that we would give sacrificially, not just because that's what we do or that's the next part of the service, but because of your work in us. God, may this be, unlike a a tangible idol, may this be a tangible demonstration of worship. Because it all begins with an act of grace, and that act of grace began with Jesus' work for us on the cross.